So my name is Paul Moriarty. I'm a paediatric infectious diseases consultant uh, in the Children's Hospital. Um, and uh, Chris has asked me to um, give a talk about paediatric infectious diseases pearls um, and avoiding the common mistakes, um, which was a nice title. And then he gave me uh, a slightly longer brief. Um, he said he was keen to hear about uh, antimicrobial prescribing, who we should treat for hospital-acquired infections, do children between one and three months really need amoxicillin to cover for listeria, can we stop using PEN-V for, for group A strep tonsillitis, and um, maybe we should just move to Tazosin for everybody like the adults have. Um, as an aside, I'm not going to mention SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus or COVID. Um, there's plenty about that out there already. So uh, briefly to answer Chris, Chris's questions, who we should treat for hospital-acquired infections? Well, the definition of a hospital-acquired infection is an infection that arises in a patient more than 48 hours after they are admitted to hospital or within 48 hours of discharge. And then healthcare-associated infections, which is probably a more applicable term to paediatrics, um, are infections that develop in association with healthcare or as a direct result of healthcare interventions. Um, in paediatrics, who we should treat for hospital-acquired infections probably depends on the individual circumstances. So a child readmitted with a febrile upper respiratory tract infection soon after discharge for some other reason clearly doesn't have a hospital-acquired infection in the, cla in the classical definition, whereas a line infection developing in a Broviac line on a patient on home TPN certainly has an infection which is likely to, to involve um, more atypical organisms and require broader cover than what we would usually give as empiric treatment for sepsis. The next question, do children under one, over one month but under three months really need amoxicillin to cover listeria infection? And the answer to that question is probably not and there's plenty of data to bear that out. Um, it is, however, recommended in our NICE guidelines um, and amoxicillin does serve a useful purpose in that urinary tract infection is the commonest invasive in bacterial infection in this age group and enterococci are not constitu uh, constitutively sensitive to cephalosporins. So amoxicillin serves the purpose of covering enterococcal UTI, although that's not it's the reason for its, its um, placement as empiric treatment in this group. Can we stop treating tonsillitis with penicillin V? Um, in most cases, yes. In most cases, it's a viral illness. And the aim of treatment with penicillin V is mainly to avoid complications such as rheumatic fever and other post-streptococcal complications. Um, penicillin V to treat sore throat um, gives you a time benefit of 12 to 18 hours in total in terms of resolution of symptoms and the number needed to treat to benefit one patient is somewhere between 6 and 20. The number needed to harm is about 15. So uh, not a great benefit from antibiotics. The fever pain criteria, you will know, they're validated in children down to three years of age and they're useful for making a decision about whether or not to use antibiotics. And um, many people ask about the penicillin V courses which are long, multiple daily dosing and not a very pleasant antibiotic to take. And the bottom line is amoxicillin is probably as effective uh, but slightly broader spectrum.
And should we use Tazacin just like the adults? Well, the, the, the answer to that is no. Um, our, the range of our anti, um, antibiotic sensitivities in the, in the bacteria that we see uh, are covered with, by, by third-generation cephalosporins. And um, we've seen that in Northern Ireland, E. coli resistance to Tazacin since the, the um, since use of Tazacin as first-line empiric treatment for sepsis was introduced has doubled. So um, I'm going to talk about fever in the return traveler. Um, we are asked, we are frequently asked questions about this um, and, and I suppose I'll try to go through a couple of cases to illustrate the important points. Um, the most important question is probably where were you and what were you doing there? Um, so uh, whether, whether you were visiting friends or relatives, VFR travellers are more often children, so more applicable to us. Um, how long were you away and when did you get back? Um, wh which countries were visited and where did you stay or, or wh what type of accommodation did you stay in? Um, whether there were travel vaccines um, prior to travel or malaria prophylaxis taken to go to, when going to malaria endemic areas. Um, whether a person used mosquito nets, what other activities they got up to while they were there. So um, um, whether that's holiday or visiting family. Um, <clears throat> and then what medical history um, the child has. So, uh, and that speaks to the bottom line, which is that common things are common. So, so this may not be anything to do with a tropical or unusual infection, but, some, uh, but a complication of a, an already established medical problem. <clears throat> so to go through a case, um, and just as an, as an aside, in case people recognize features of these cases, um, none of the cases are exact case reports of, of people that we've seen, usually amalgamation, an amalgamation of two or three cases in order to illustrate different points. So um, the first case is a 12-year-old visiting Northern Ireland from Uganda who presented to the emergency department with high fevers several times daily, occurring with rigors. She complained of a sore throat, a headache. She had slight thrombocytopenia and lymphopenia. CRP was up. LFTs and UNE were normal. Um, <clears throat> and the doctors in ED were concerned about a uh, possibility of malaria, so they sent thick and thin blood films to the laboratory and a malaria rapid diagnostic test. Um, and the rapid diagnostic test was positive and the thick and thin films showed what looked like to the lab technician malaria par parasites within um, the red blood cells. So the only other, other history, she's a healthy young girl, but she was treated for malaria three months ago. So appropriately, uh, the team opened the UK malaria guidelines from 2016, which gives really good um, clear evidence-based and um, rational advice for managing malaria in a UK setting. Um, very important to know what, what the features of complicated malaria are. Clearly, um, evidence of cerebral malaria, such as obtundation or seizures, um, acidosis, hypoglycemia, severe anemia, um, and from the lab, a parasitemia of greater than 2% um, uh, indicates severe or complicated malaria. 
So what investigations should you do? Uh, you should always do a blood culture in the return traveler um, <coughs> along with your usual investigations for sepsis, blood count, inflammatory markers, UNE, liver function test. Uh, beware of rapid diagnostic tests. There are a number out there, uh, but many will persi stay persistently positive after treatment for falciparum malaria for up to three months. So in this child's case, this malaria rapid diagnostic test may, may represent a false positive. Um, you need to send blood films uh, by three to the laboratory and you haven't excluded malaria until you have three negative blood films. A, think, a thick film um, examines the percentage of parasitemia uh, within the blood and a thin film where the cells are more clearly visible allows um, species identification. Both depend on the experience of the lab and again we don't see a huge amount of malaria. We have an excellent bacteriology laboratory in, uh, attached to our hospital, but we don't see a huge amount of malaria, and so we should bear that caveat in mind. Um, and of course, you should take any other investigations that the history or examination suggests. Briefly from the UK guidelines, the recommended treatment now are artemisinin and combination therapy drugs and Riamet is the one that we most often use. Um, it's usually available from our pharmacy if not immediately available. Uh, it can be moved from another part of the city as we've had to do on one, on one or two occasions. Um, and the treatment of choice for complicated malaria is IV artesanate and um, these artemisinin based drugs outperform the traditional treatment, the chloroquine based treatments um, in terms of uh, treatment efficacy. Anybody with malaria who's presenting with suspected malaria and fever should be covered with broad-spectrum antibiotics such as ceftriaxone, plus or minus doxycycline to cover for tick-borne fevers or rickettsial illnesses. Um, and remember the FEAST trial. So we like fluid boluses um, and um, they probably are appropriate in our setting in most cases. But the FEAST trial showed very clearly that, that large fluid boluses were, um, were associated with an increased mortality in children with sepsis in a malaria endemic region. So she was given Riamet um, and she was given IV creftraxone. And her fevers persisted and then settled after a couple of days. And the blood films showed plasmodium ovale, so not falciparum malaria, but um, the much less pathogenic uh, Plasmodium ovale. Um, and then a culture result came back from a throat swab that somebody had undertaken because of her history of sore throat. Um, and that showed gram-positive cocci in chains, which you all know is group A strep. So the point here is common things are common. She was treated for malaria. She probably has a persistent or continuous uh, parasitemia related to um, long-standing Plasmodium ovale um, uh, infection and, um, and all along the, the, the cause of her fever and her illness was, was group A strep. So briefly, malaria accounts for about 20% of travels, travelers presenting with fever returning from Africa. We see somewhere between 1,300 and 1,800 cases in the UK annually. 
and children account for about 10% of those cases, usually children who are visiting friends and relatives. Uh, 10 to 15 people die from malaria every year. Uh, and Plasmodium ovale uh, often is, is carried asymptomatically in endemic areas. It rarely causes severe disease and crucially it causes, when, when people are unwell um, with ovale parasitemia, they tend to have a tertian fever, in other words, a fever that goes up and down every 48 to 72 hours. Um, and ovale and vivax malaria have uh, a dormant stage, which requires uh, what they call radical cure or, or treatment with primaquine after treatment for, for the, the illness itself. Um, and remember always to check G6PD assay prior to giving primaquine uh, because it can cause hemolysis in patients with G6PD deficiency. Um, some important resources, uh, if you're stuck in an emergency department with a febrile sick patient, the UK imported fever service is an invaluable resource. Um, and then there's the, the CDC and the ECDC uh, databases for, and, and the ProMed databases for, for looking for where there are current outbreaks of particular infectious diseases such as viral hemorrhagic fevers, etc. So, where were you and what were you doing there? Most um, adults who travel, travel for work or holiday. Um, half, of, half of visiting friends and relatives travelers are children. Um, how long were you away and when did you return? Well, TB risk uh, increases uh, with travel to an endemic area for over one month. Um, and, and usually people with tuberculosis won't present within a week of returning home, although children do develop primary TB at a much higher rate than adults, and so will present earlier. Uh, incubation periods are important. So um, if you've returned from a dengue endemic area and it is more than seven days since your arrival, you're unlikely to be suffering from dengue fever. Um, obviously, what countries did you visit? Is, it a, is there an outbreak of viral hemorrhagic fever or other? Um, again, the ProMed website is excellent for that. Uh, where did you stay? Um, whether there were travel vaccinations or malaria prophylaxis taken. So visiting friends and relatives, travelers tend not to either take malaria prophylaxis or um, um, take travel vaccines because they're going home. And, and so it's, it's, um, it's not um, normalized usually to, to, to take those precautions. Whether there's use of mosquito nets, what did you do when you were there? Um, and that history should, should be age appropriate. We see um, older teenagers now and may, may see, uh, and you may see older uh, adults in, in other settings. And um, a history, including sexual history from adults is important uh, in returning travelers. Um, what medical history do they have? We've mentioned and what sick contents, but remember the common things are common and they're, they're as likely as not to be the cause of a fever in a return traveler. Okay, so, so uh, the next uh, case was a little girl that we treated this summer gone by um, who presented to the emergency department with acute redness and swelling of the right side of her face extending to the upper part of the pinna of the ear, um, which was also swollen. She had had a febrile flu-like illness 
just preceding this, which had now settled. She was fine, happy, playing, and, and the uh, lesion itself was painless. There was no history of an injury or bite, and she was fully immunized. Um, and there was no, uh, you can't see it in the picture there, but there was no evidence really of periorbital involvement with, with, uh, with the redness. Um, so what treatment should we give in this situation? Treatment for cellulitis in children. Um, cellulitis is, is most, almost invariably caused by methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. We have a very low prevalence of community-acquired MRSA infection in children in Northern Ireland. Uh, but you should ask about risk factors if you want to treat for cellulitis. Um, so travel to a country where, uh, travel or treatment, uh, uh, medical treatment in a country where MRSA is common. So the Southern United States in particular, um, parts of Eastern Europe, uh, etc. Um, a family history of MRSA colonization or a personal history of MRSA colonization are important. And obviously, um, complex uh, medical history um, places you at increased risk of MRSA infection. So our little girl didn't have any of those things. Um, so uh, I'm going to plug our new version of the microguide now. So the, um, the Royal Hospitals or Belfast Trust microguide has uh, just got a new version of the paediatric microguide uh, or antibiotic guidelines and we've added several different chapters, several new chapters to that. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to download and use it. It's simple and easy to use. Um, and when you look this up, you see that the treatment for cellulitis in children is flucloxacillin, not flucloxacillin and penicillin V, as I was taught in university, um, and not coamoxiclav. And so that's what she was given, and no change occurred. She was still happy, well, with, um, with a lesion on her face. And so when she represented, um, it was felt that this might be a facial cellulitis with possible involvement of the eye and nice guidelines and microguide say in that situation that you can use coamoxiclav to add anaerobic and gram-negative cover. Um, and things slowly improved towards the end of the coamoxiclav not sure whether it's made a difference or not. She remained well. And then a week later, she represented um, with a facial palsy. And now the diagnosis should be clear if it wasn't clear from the original picture. But if you re-examine that picture, there is the impression of a central clearing to that rash just in front of her hairline. And if you imagine a bullseye lesion, you might, you might imagine under her hairline the, the other half of that circle. Um, so the history was re-examined and it turns out our, our patient was on holidays in the west of Ireland a month earlier with her cousins. They'd been glamping and had a great time. They'd spent a lot of time outside running around. Um, there was no history of a facial injury. There was no history of a tick bite and there was no history of mosquito bites or any other or, or flea bites or anything else. But one of her cousins had had a tick bite um, without any immediate apparent consequences. And so what should we do next? Should we test her for, for Lyme disease? Should we test her for any other illnesses? Or should we just get on and treat her? Um, Lyme disease uh, is caused by the spirochete Borrelia 
Doferi um, and is a tick-borne illness. Um, not all ticks carry Lyme disease, even in endemic areas. Um, if you do have a tick bite, the symptoms of Lyme disease in the early part are usually fever, flu-like illness, and the classical bullseye lesion. Sometimes you'll see more than one. Important to remember that children, uh, the, the, the ticks tend to reside on the end of long grass. And so for an adult, the bullseye lesions will often occur below the hips, whereas in children above the hips and often around the face and hairline. The next phase of the illness uh, involves the central nervous system and um, um, can often cause facial palsy. Um, it can cause um, heart block um, and some people can present with um, neuro, neuroborreliosis um, characterized by meningism, sometimes polyradiculopathy and sometimes encephalopathy. And then the, the late stages of Lyme disease involve um, uh, further CNS effects and encephalopathy or uh, Lyme arthritis or uh, acrodermatitis um, atrophic hands, which can be seen in the top and is not commonly seen. How do you diagnose Lyme disease? Well, if you've got a clinical suspicion, a typical lesion, and um, travel to somewhere where Lyme disease is common or endemic, then you should treat the patient for Lyme disease without a test. And that's, um, that is nice guideline driven. If you do want to do a test, there's a two-step algorithm. You can send um, a sample to our lab and we will do an ELISA here, which will screen, which will, will, um, screen for Lyme disease. And if the screening test is positive, um, then this is followed by uh, immunoblotting at the, the National Reference Laboratory. You can sample other um, sites such as uh, CSF or joint aspirate if, if, uh, um, if necessary. In children, uh, neuro-Lyme complicates about 10% of, uh, of uh, Lyme cases uh, and so uh, it's something to think about. Um, but beware in children that the classical bullseye rash might be concealed by hair um, and uh, also that antibodies persist for some time. So those living in endemic areas such as the New Forest in the south of England uh, or in parts of Central Europe or Scandinavia may well have antibodies from previous infection. Treatment is amoxicillin, 30 milligrams per kilogram three times a day for, for three weeks. Uh, alternates are azithromycin or keftriaxone for CNS Lyme. But Lyme disease affecting the cranial nerves, particularly facial nerve palsy, uh, can be treated with oral amoxicillin. And that's what the art patient was given. And at last clinic check, things had um, improved considerably and her facial palsy had almost resolved. Just to be aware of a few controversies surrounding Lyme disease. So chronic Lyme disease is a phenomenon that, that our chronic Lyme disease, um, as we've seen, is, is well described. And post-Lyme fatigue and post-Lyme um, pain syndromes are well described uh, too. But outside of that, there are, uh, there's a broad um, industry surrounding the idea of chronic Lyme disease, um, which uh, includes 
laboratories specifically set up to test for Lyme disease and other co-infection. They involve prolonged and often expensive treatments, sometimes uh, people in this country uh, being recommended to go to the eastern United States for additional treatments. Um, and the important thing is that even in those with persistent symptoms, and we should counsel our patients when we've diagnosed them with Lyme disease, that symptoms and fatigue may persist. There is no evidence for more prolonged courses than the one four weeks keftriaxone recommended for CNS Lyme, and no evidence for repeated um, um, courses of keftriaxone either. Okay, so the, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, vaccine adverse events. Again, these are questions that we get asked all the time and it's a common reason for referral to our clinic. Um, so I'm gonna take through a history, uh, an eight week old boy brought in by ambulance from the GP surgery. He had his first set of immunizations today. Um, and about 40 minutes after his, his uh, immunizations, his parents were still near the GP surgery. They came back in because he'd become very floppy, pale, unresponsive, blew around the lips. Um, and uh, the GP uh, rightly assumed that he was having some sort of vaccine reaction and called an ambulance. In the emergency department 15 minutes later, um, there was a good deal of distress um, on mum's part. She has no English and was un unable to give a clear history, but from the ambulance staff, we, we've been told that he uh, had become very suddenly floppy and pale soon after his vaccinations. He still was floppy, still pale, and he had an audible strider. So what treatment should we give in this situation? Well, he was in an emergency department. He'd had a sudden collapse having been given a drug. Uh, and so he was given IM adrenaline as well as an antihistamine and some steroids. He recovered relatively quickly within a few minutes, uh, but was admitted to the short stay unit uh, for observation. It was noted at um, at that stage that his strider was ongoing even though he had recovered well and was quite alert and happy. And once we had time to review the electronic care record and to have a, a discuss things with mum through a translator, it emerged that he had fairly significant laryngomalacia and actually strider was a fairly frequent occurrence for this little boy post-feeds or when he was distressed. So he was referred to our clinic and the questions were, should he have further vaccinations? Was this an anaphylactic reaction to his first set of vaccinations? And um, which ones should he or shouldn't he have? So we're often asked the question, should we separate vaccines, for example? So first of all, how common is anaphylaxis after primary uh, immunization? So in total, the incidence UK and in Canada and in the USA, uh, it looks like the incidence is about one per million vaccine doses given. So not at all common is the answer. So what was this if it wasn't anaphylaxis? So this, this is a common um, um, vaccine reaction that is, in my experience, uh, under-recognized. So hypoxic, or, sorry, hypotonic, hyper-responsive episodes occur 
classically after the first set of vaccinations and they seem to be associated with the pertussis component of that vaccination. And they're characterized by what we saw in our, our young patient, sudden episode of floppiness occurring between one and 48 hours or between half an hour afterwards and 48 hours after the vaccine, but often within three to four hours of, of receiving the vaccine. They go floppy, they go really, really pale and unresponsive, but they continue to breathe, albeit sometimes with quite shallow breathing. Um, there's sometimes peripheral cyanosis or cyanosis around the lips, um, and they tend to resolve spontaneously. They're not seizures. They're not associated with any long-term adverse effects. Um, and as I said, they're attributable to the acellular pertussis component of the vaccine. Will it happen again? So. There's a really good study from Pediatrics from 2017, uh, which is a, a meta-analysis of vaccine studies and provides really practical information for, for pediatricians trying to answer that question for parents. So um, I'll, uh, the reference is there on the slide. Um, it's from Pediatrics in 2017. Uh, the recurrence rate of HHE is less than 1%. Um, and the recurrence rate for anaphylaxis in, in patients uh, checked with skin prick testing first and then vaccinated was zero from 130 patients in three studies. Um, so what happened next? While we were convinced of the diagnosis, we immunized him in hospital for his primary immunizations and he had um, um, uh, surgery for his uh, significant uh, laryngomalacia um, and last time I saw him he was well and fully immunized. Uh, another little girl just to illustrate another a common vaccine reaction, three-year-old girl who, with her preschool immunizations the day before, uh, grumpy and febrile later that day with a low-grade fe uh, fever and the next day she presented the emergency department with significant swelling of the upper part of her right leg from hip to knee uh, which was the side she received um, her diphtheria pertussis and acellular, or diphtheria tetanus and acellular pertussis booster. Uh, it was tender and she wasn't really willing to move that leg much. So what should we do here? In my experience uh, with this type of thing, uh, people are comfortable with the idea that this is likely to be a vaccine reaction but not comfortable with the idea of not treating it for cellulitis. Uh, so we've been through cellulitis treatment already. Um, how common is cellulitis after vaccination? I wasn't really able to find any good data, but um, there was a case report of a similar episode published which reviewed data over the previous 30 years, published in, in the early 2000s, and was not able to find any cases of cellulitis related to primary immunization. I guess the other way to think of it is, even with dirty needles, how common do we see cellulitis after a, 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 a needle stick injury to a child in a park or otherwise? And the answer to that is also very, very uncommonly. So using a sterile needle, it's not likely that a child has developed cellulitis within 24 hours of a vaccine. How common are lo large local reactions or extensive limb swelling? Uh, local reactions occur in up to a third of those children who have the preschool booster. In other words, their fourth dose of diphtheria, tetanus and acellular pertussis. Um, 
and uh, about 1% have more extensive limb swelling with some limitation of movement and pain. So it's a common reaction after that fourth vaccine. Less common, but not uncommon after the, the three primary immunizations at, at um, two, three, and four months. So will it recur? If you have a fifth dose, yes, it's likely to recur. So it will recur in 50 or 60% of those patients who had extensive limb swelling the first time. But um, this is the fourth and final dose of this particular preparation of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. Uh, we give a lower antigen continent in the teenage vaccines that we use. Um, in those infants who do have redness and swelling, there is a, again a high recurrence rate up to 50%. And even those who have very significant redness and swelling of over five centimeters, they have a recurrence rate of around 10%. So you can counsel the parents that this is harmless. It is not an infection and it may well recur, but it will be harmless the next time also. And some helpful resources. So the Green Book, uh, published by uh, published um, uh, with the, by the PHE on the recommendations of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, is a fantastic resource. There's also the Vaccine Handbook app, which is um, US um, style, um, um, or which is based on the US vaccination program but also provides lots and lots of good information around vaccine adverse events. And if you see someone who's had a vaccine complication, we are very happy to see them at our clinic. And my last slide is just a plug for antimicrobial stewardship. I've avoided it so far for the most part, but just to say that um, uh, we, we would really encourage a collaborative approach between infection specialists and uh, subspecialists such as emergency physicians. Uh, over the past five years, we have shown that we can um, increase our use of narrow spectrum antibiotics in the emergency department to above the WHO uh, recommendation of 60%. And I don't believe we have seen an increase in infection complications related to that. And that's me finished. Thanks for listening. Um, and I'll take any questions that you have.